But Pastor Sam, would you come once again? Brothers and sisters, let's welcome Pastor Sam as he comes and brings the word. Good morning. Would you please open the word of God with me to the book of Malachi and chapter 3. I want to express again my gratitude and thankfulness to all of you for your warm hospitality and generosity towards me uh, this entire time and my wife. I've really enjoyed being here with you, getting to know some of you, meeting many of you. It's really been a pleasure. So thank you very much for having me here. Uh, it's a privilege. Over the past two days, as, as many if not most or if perhaps even all of you know, we've been studying the doctrine of divine impassibility impassibility. And in that study, we've looked at many different passages to make sure that our doctrines arise from the scriptures themselves and nothing else. And there's a passage that I intentionally did not give a lot of attention to during those lessons, and that is the passage that we're going to be studying today. And obviously, I I neglected it to a degree because I wanted to give it more attention this morning uh, with you on the Lord's Day. And so what we're going to do is to read Malachi chapter 3, verses 6 to 15. Malachi chapter 3, verses 6 to 15. And after we read it, we'll get into our outline. Malachi chapter 3, verses 6 to 15. This is the word of God. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts." Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord, but you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. This is the word of God. Well, brothers and sisters, and thank you for standing for the reading. I didn't ask you to, but that is certainly a way of showing due reverence to the word of God. I want to, for an outline in this sermon, cover just two main points, just two main points this morning in this sermon, talking about several things in those main points. And so the first thing that we're going to talk about is the unfaithfulness of Israel and the faithfulness of God. The unfaithfulness of Israel and the faithfulness of God. Now, we're in Malachi chapter 3, which means you already have a degree of familiarity with this book because your pastors have been preaching to you from it. 
And so I'm not coming to you with something that's entirely new to you, something that you're already familiar with. You've already heard of God's unquestionable love and his unquestionable justice and his jealousy for his glory from your own pastors. And so the things that we say today, in many ways, will build upon and continue things that you have already been seeing in the book of Malachi, things that you've already been hearing from your pastors. And that's because this book is an ongoing dialogue. God speaks and accuses Israel and they defend themselves. Well, what do you mean we've done that or we've said that? And God, God replies to them or God makes a statement and they question him. Well, what do you mean? How, how is that so? And so there's this ongoing dialogue that you've already been hearing. And this, our passage this morning is just another continuation of those things. And so our passage opens, Malachi 3 and verse 6, with God making a statement that he has been faithful, that he, the Lord, has been faithful to Israel. He has been unchanging and constant. And he accuses Israel of being unfaithful from its beginning to its present generation, reaching all the way back to their fathers. He says in verses 6 and 7, For I, the Lord, do not change... Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. He's declaring his faithfulness. Verse 7 is his accusation of unfaithfulness to the Israelites. From the days of your fathers, you have turned away, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. And so this is why I'm entitling this point, The Unfaithfulness of Israel and the Faithfulness of God. Now, as you know, Malachi is a very late book, a very late book in the history of Israel. If you made a timeline of Israel's history, and this is the beginning of their history, and this is uh, the end, so to speak, when Jerusalem is destroyed by the Romans after Jesus' ascension, Malachi is the furthest Old Testament book, the closest to Jesus' appearance and incarnation. So Malachi's, it, Malachi comes after a long history that Israel has already gone through leading up to this time. And for that reason, we need to make sure that we understand that that background, that history that has already passed uh, leading up to the time of Malachi and Israel as he spoke to them. And so God states that he has been faithful, but Israel has been faithless. And to understand that history and the faithfulness of God and the faithlessness or the unfaithfulness of Israel, we really need to think about the covenants that God has made with the Israelites in order to understand what is going on here. To what has God been faithful? And to what have the Israelites been unfaithful? There were specific, uh, uh, a specific relationship that God had with the people to which he was faithful, a specific relationship that God had with the people to which they were unfaithful, namely the covenants that God had made with the nation of Israel. So I'd ask you to turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. And that will help us to get a better understanding of what's happening here in Malachi chapter 3. Deuteronomy Chapter 6. Look at verse 20 of Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is the last book of Moses. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 20. It says this, When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you. Now, skip over to verse 24. How will they answer this question? In other words, Israel, I'm giving you the law 
for you to obey on, as the basis of God's covenant with you. You need to pass this law down to future generations, to your children. And so when your children receive the law from you, this is how you are to explain it to them when they ask you, why do we have all these statutes? Why do we have all these commandments? Verse 24, this, this is how they are to answer. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes. This is the, the parent explaining to the child. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always so that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he commanded us. So how are the parents to explain their covenant relationship with God to their children? How are they to explain it? They are to, they are to explain it like this. God has given them the land of Canaan through Abraham, and he gave it to them freely, not because they were righteous, not because they were so great and had earned it, but because the Lord is gracious and promised them this land. You are the offspring of Abraham, you inherit his land, the land that I promised to him. But having given them that land freely and graciously, and having brought them into that land after the exodus from Egypt and all of the wilderness wandering and all of the, well, that, in Deuteronomy this hasn't happened yet, but the conquest of Canaan and the entrance uh, into, the, into Canaan, they're right at the, the beginning of that here in Deuteronomy. When they get into that land that has been freely promised and granted to them, they must live righteously in order to remain in that land. They must live righteously in order to be God's blessed people in the land. So the Lord says, here's the land I'm giving to you. Now, if you want to live in it in a blessed way, if you want to have a blessed life in that land, you must keep my commandments. You must obey my statutes. As the father says to the child, it will be righteousness for us, for our good always, that he might preserve us alive. And so God gives the land freely, but requires faithfulness on the part of Israel to enjoy that land on an ongoing basis. Now, if you're still in Deuteronomy, I'd like you to turn over to chapter 11. Chapter 11. What happens if Israel is not faithful? What happens if Israel disobeys? Well, the Lord very clearly, all throughout the Law of Moses, but especially in Deuteronomy, tells them that obedience leads to blessing and disobedience leads to curses. And we're going to see that here in Deuteronomy 11, verses 26 to 28. See, in other words, pay attention, understand this. I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today. And the curse if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way that I am commanding you today to go after other gods that you have not known. So we see very plainly, obedience leads to blessing. Disobedience leads to curse. If Israel is unfaithful, they will be cursed, not just in the land, but they will be expelled from the land. You don't need to turn there, but I'll read this one verse to you. Leviticus 20, verse 22 says, You shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my rules and do them, that the land where I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out. In other words, if you are unfaithful, if you are disobedient, the land will vomit you out. It will expel you. It will propel you out from itself. That's the language of exile. Obedience leads to blessing. Disobedience leads to curse. Now, 
underlying, as a foundation underneath this relationship, God had made a promise to Israel that we must remember. God had promised to Abraham not just that his, inher- that his descendants would inherit the land of Canaan, but God had also promised Abraham that one of his descendants would bring blessing to all the nations of the world. In your seed, in your offspring, Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so that promise that one of Abraham's descendants would be a blessing to all the nations in many ways acted as a guarantee that God would continue to preserve Israel until that seed was born. Israel will be unfaithful. God will punish them. He will even exile them. But he promised, I will bring you back from exile because I have not yet fulfilled that promise that the seed who will bless the nations has come. I've not yet been faithful to that. Well, he is being faithful, but he has not yet fulfilled that promise. The Messiah has not yet been born. And so we have to combine on the one hand, if Israel is disobedient, they will not enjoy the land. They will be exiled. With on the other hand, God has this underlying promise, but I will not utterly cast you out or cast you off because I have promised from your very nation to bring about the blessing for all the nations. And so we can understand then how you get all the way to Malachi and God is accusing them of unfaithfulness all the way. And yet he has been faithful to them. He has not cast them off. And the result that you get is hundreds of years of Israelite history in which Israel is unfaithful and God is faithful. And truly, God punishes Israel. He exiles them, but he brings them back as he said that he would. And underneath all of the treachery and all of the betrayal and all of the idolatry of Israel is a faithful, unchanging God. I, the Lord, change not. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. If God were like us, if God were like you and me, after hundreds of years of wickedness and betrayal and unfaithfulness on the part of Israel, would we keep our promises to them? No, we would, we would, feel, just, we would feel justified in saying, listen, I don't even have to keep my promise to you. You've been so unfaithful to me in this relationship for hundreds of years. But because the Lord changes not, because his being is immutable, because his character is unchangeable, therefore they have not been consumed. And think about it. This is the nation that committed adultery on its wedding night. God brings them out of the land of Egypt. He brings them to Mount Sinai where he's going to give them his law and he he reveals his majesty and glory on top of the mountain, though clouded, and so they're seeing flashes of light and they think, well, Moses has been gone long enough. You know, let's just make a a golden bull. Let's make a, a golden calf and let's worship that and say that this is the God that brought us up out of Egypt. And so right when God has delivered Israel and made them his own nation uh, in a greater way than previously, on that, on, in that very time, Israel says, hey, let's, uh, let's worship this gold bull that we just made. You know, they're, they're being unfaithful on their wedding night, so to speak, and yet God does not utterly cast them off. He punished them. He punished them severely for that unfaithfulness, as he often did throughout their history, but he did not entirely destroy the nation. In fact, if you go back to that passage... 
Moses pleads with the Lord and says, you promised to preserve us. You promised to bring us into the land. And if you destroy all of us right now, then the people will say you are unfaithful to your promise. And so the Lord is faithful to his promise, not because Moses convinced him, but because the Lord used that to change Moses and the hearts of the people back towards him through that threat, which some of them experienced the the judgment and some of them were delivered from it. So you see, from the beginning... Israel has been unfaithful. From the time of the fathers, they have been unfaithful when all along God has been faithful to them. But there's really interesting aspect about the faithfulness of the generation of Malachi. It's very easy to talk about the unfaithfulness of the Israelites at Sinai or the Israelites in the time of the kings because it's so obvious. But the unfaithfulness of the Israelites in the time of Malachi was not so obvious. It was not the same kind of idolatry, blatant idolatry, that had been going on in their previous history. So when God says to them, return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts, back in our passage in Malachi 3, you have to realize that what he's asking them to re- the, the ways in which he's asking them to return is not necessarily cut down your Asherah poles and destroy your Baal statues and get rid of your high places. He doesn't say that. Those are not the accusations that God brings to the people. He tells them, listen, you're saying that you're actually obeying me. You're saying that you're actually keeping my laws, but you're doing it the way that you want to do it with insincere hearts, and that's not true obedience. They're saying, we are tithing to you. You know, we, we're doing what you told us to do, so how can you say return to me? We're already keeping your law, God. And God is saying to them, you are so absolutely wrong. You are not keeping my law. You see, the Israelites at that time were very self-righteous very pharisaical, like the Pharisees who think, that, who think they're perfectly keeping the law. They're not quite like their fathers who made idols and blatantly worshipped other gods. These Israelites weren't worshipping another god. They were just worshipping their god the way that they wanted to. They were really worshipping themselves. And so they ask, how shall we return? What more could you ask us to do, God? We're already keeping your law, they think. They think they're righteous. They think they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. But their problem was outward obedience. They draw near to God with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. And God proves it to them. He proves this accusation from the nature of their obedience, or perhaps we could say the nature of their disobedience. They offered unfaithful faithfulness. The faithfulness they thought they were bringing bringing to God in the covenant was unfaithfulness. And what does he do? He declares them to be under a curse. He declares them to be under a curse because they're not keeping the covenant. They're not obeying the statutes and the commandments, which is disobedience. And the example he gives to them is the tithe in verses 8 to 12, back in Malachi 3. Please turn back there if you haven't already. Verses 8 to 12, God says, Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But the people plead innocence. They plead righteousness. How have we robbed you? We've been tithing. God says, In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. 
Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. This is just rehashing Deuteronomy to the people in the present generation saying, listen, if you obey my commands, I will bless you in the land. You are not obeying my commands, so therefore you are under a curse. And so therefore we can see the covenant that God made with Israel behind the language of Malachi. Malachi comes with a lawsuit based on the covenant. He is saying, this is the law, this is how you've broken it, and this is the way that you need to return according to that law. This is why you are being punished as well. The problem is that the Israelites, they don't, they don't believe God's word. They don't believe him. Blessed life depends on obedience. Cursed life depends on disobedience. And God tells them, if you obey me, I will bless you. But Israel does not believe that. They don't think that's true. In other words, they're calling God a liar. They're calling God unfaithful to his covenant. Well, why do I say that? The problem is in verses 13 to 15. The Israelites don't believe that if they're faithful, if they're obedient, they will be blessed. God says, your words, the Israelites' words, have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? What have we said against the Lord? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit, what is the blessing, what is the benefit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. You see, everything is wrong in the Israelites' minds. They thought they were obeying. And because they thought they were obeying, in their minds they think, we're obeying, we're not being blessed. So God is not keeping his promise. God is being unfaithful. I'm, we're obeying. We're, we're offering the tithe. We're doing what God told us to do. So where's our blessing? God is not keeping his side. They're saying, it's vain to serve God. Why bother keeping the law if there's no blessing for it? And God says, you're, you're actually not keeping the law. Keep the law and I will prove it to you. Put me to the test. I will show you. If you keep my law, I will bless you. I will pour out the heavens upon you. I will rebuke the devourer. In other words, the locust won't come and destroy your crops. Your vines will be fruitful. You will have wine that will make your hearts glad. But the people say, look how the wicked prosper. They put God to the test and they escape. They live with blessing. Why bother being righteous then? It's vain to serve God. He doesn't keep his promises. The only way you can think like that is if you truly think you've been righteous. And then you can call God unfaithful because I've been righteous. I did my part of the covenant. Where's God? Why isn't he doing his part of the covenant? It's scary to even talk like that. They have wrongly judged themselves and they have wrongly judged God. They have accused the God of the universe, the husband of Israel, of unfaithfulness. They are accusing God of unfaithfulness. It's blasphemy. They want him to reward their insincere and incomplete obedience. They have accused God of injustice for not punishing evildoers, and they're saying that he's not keeping his word. 
which proves that however righteous they thought they were, they're just as unfaithful as their fathers, which is God's accusation against them. And notice that in verse 6, God calls them sons of Jacob. That's a significant phrase, you sons of Jacob. In many ways, it's an, it's an insult, but not the way that we use insults. We use insults to hurt people. God's, God's saying something true about these people. He's saying something that is absolutely entirely true. It's insulting because it's true for them. Why, why would that be an insult to call them sons of Jacob? Well, Jacob means deceiver. Jacob is the one who stole the birthright, the birthright of his older brother through deceit by deceiving an old blind man, his father, Isaac. Jacob was crafty and cunning. He tried to, to, to get what he wanted through his own trickery. He was the deceiver. And these Israelites are deceiving themselves. They are sons of Jacob. They want to wiggle and work their way around the terms that God had established, doing things their way to get what they want from God. And they have the audacity, the pride and boldness to blame God when they don't get what they think they deserve. And God says, there is only one reason why you have not been consumed. There is only one reason why you have not been utterly cast off and destroyed, however righteous you may think that you are, and that is because I, the Lord, do not change. I keep my promises. I fulfill my covenant. I keep steadfast love and mercy to all generations. My unchangeableness, my unswerving faithfulness is the reason that you are not consumed, O sons of the deceiver, O sons of Jacob. And God proves this once again by calling, by calling even these fake and insincere children of Jacob to return to him. He proves his faithfulness. He proves his constancy. He proves his unchangeableness by saying, even now, return to me. Return to me. I have not cut you off. I have not utterly divorced you from myself. Come back to me. He calls his people back to himself after all of their wickedness, all of their treachery, still promising blessing if they will obey him and keep his laws. Because even then, the covenant promises made to Israel through Abraham and Moses and David were alive and well. God had made those covenants and he was faithful to them. So what we've done in this first point, God's, or Israel's unfaithfulness and God's faithfulness, is we've understood it according to its background in the Old Covenant, seeing the historical background and the legal background of God's faithfulness to the covenant and Israel's unfaithfulness and the basis upon which God can call them back to himself, saying, return to me and I will return to you. If you offer up to me true obedience, I will return to you as we have promised, as we have covenanted blessings in the land of Canaan. Which brings us to our second point the unfaithfulness of man and the faithfulness of God. The unfaithfulness of man and the faithfulness of God. It's no surprise, but we are not Israel. We are not Israel. We are in Bakersfield, California in 2017 very far in time and space from Israel. But Israel is a picture of us. Israel is a picture of us. And the reason why Israel is a picture of us is because Israel is a picture of Adam. And we are in Adam. Let me explain what I mean. 
Adam too was given a holy land, a holy space, the Garden of Eden. And Adam too was given laws of obedience. In this land, in this garden, you must do these things. You must obey these laws. He was given laws about the trees and the fruit on the trees. Adam too was given a covenant of obedience. Keep these laws and you will receive a blessing. He was blessed or promised, excuse me, with the blessing of eternal life, in fact. But Adam, too, was faithless. He was unfaithful. Let me read a verse to you. You don't need to turn there because it's just one verse, but it's Hosea 6, 7. Hosea 6, 7. Hosea says to the people of Israel, But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. In other words, Hosea is saying Israel is just like Adam. They are in a new holy land, a new promised land. They too have been placed under laws of obedience and they too have broken them and lost that blessing just as Adam did. They, like Adam, have transgressed the covenant. And so although we are far from Israel in time and space, Israel is a picture of us in Adam. We are faithless covenant breakers. We are those who do not obey God's laws. We are those who disbelieve his promises. We are those who are under a curse for our disobedience as well as the disobedience of our covenant head, Adam. And Paul tells us in Romans chapters 1 through 3 and beyond that there is not one single righteous person. There's no one who can offer up to God and say, listen, this is, this is my righteousness. I would like my blessing now. I would like my reward, please. There's no righteous person. No one can offer up that obedience. Paul tells us that we all have failed to reach God's glory. All have fallen short. We have not attained, we have not arrived at God's glory because all have sinned. And we have sinned in Adam and in ourselves. We are guilty for Adam's sin and our own sin. Paul tells us that the law reveals our sinfulness. The more you try to obey it, For righteousness, the more it will show and prove your unrighteousness. It will lay you bare. If you could be righteous, it would approve you. But there is not one righteous person. No one is just. No one is righteous. Not one. And Paul tells us that through one man's transgression, death entered the world and passed to all mankind. And so we in Adam died through Adam's sin. His trespass and the guilt of it came upon all people. Which is to say, we, all mankind, we are all faithless, unfaithful creatures of God in our father Adam and in ourselves. And we cannot plead righteousness before God. We are unrighteous. So why have we not been consumed? Why have we not been consumed? Why has not the entirety of mankind been sent into the eternal condemnation that it deserves? Why are the sons of Adam not consumed? We know why the sons of Jacob were not consumed. Why are the sons of Adam not consumed? And the answer to that question is not in the old covenant, but in the new covenant. I'd like you to please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews Chapter 8. You see, Israel broke the old covenant. But God did not cast them off because the Messiah had not yet been born. 
When the Messiah was born, God had then fulfilled all of his promises to Israel. There was nothing more that he had promised to do. And at that point, Israel was truly, their covenants were annulled and undone and abrogated would be the word. They are, they are completely done. And so the old covenant is annulled. It's no longer active. You won't find help or hope in it. We find help and hope in a new covenant. Hebrews 8, verses 8 to 12. And this is a quotation from Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Brothers and sisters, God made a new covenant that is not like the old one. A new covenant that is not like the covenant that's being appealed to in Malachi chapter 3. In Malachi chapter 3, it's, Offer up obedience and I will bless you in Canaan. The new covenant does not say, Offer up obedience and I will bless you. What does it say? The new covenant comes to us, offering us a promise that it will not be like the covenant that was broken. Because this covenant, the new covenant, does not depend on our faithfulness and our obedience to God. This covenant does not depend on our works or our righteousness. It depends on God's sovereign and powerful promise of what He will do. And what will He do? In this covenant, He will wipe away our sins. He will erase our transgressions. He will have mercy towards our iniquities. He will remember them no more. He will forgive all of our unrighteousness, our unholiness, our unfaithfulness, our treachery, our wickedness. He will remove it from us, as we've heard today, as far as the east is from the west. That is the new covenant. And the new covenant comes to us because God was faithful in the old covenant. He did not cast off Israel, but brought forth the promised Messiah. He was faithful in the old covenant to bring us the new covenant. And that Messiah, that promised seed of Abraham, we know who it is. It's Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who established the new covenant in his blood. And that covenant forgives sins and grants eternal life freely and fully and finally. In that covenant, God writes the law on our hearts. He gives us the fuel and the ability to truly keep the law. And because God is unchangeable, because God is immutable because God is faithful, he continues to call the world, not just Israel, and he says, return to me, children of Adam. So I call you today, if you have not repented of your sins and run to Jesus Christ by faith, to do so. Why? Because you believe the promise of the unchanging God that your sins will be forgiven and you will be declared righteous in Jesus Christ. 
to use the language of Malachi 3, put God to the test. See if he is faithful to his promise. I'd like you to turn with me to Romans chapter 10, a passage that we looked at in our, our last lesson on impassibility yesterday. Romans chapter 10, please turn there with me. Put God to the test. He's made a promise. God has covenanted forgiveness of sins. Is he going to make good on that promise? Will he fulfill that promise? Romans 10 verses 9 to 13. After, after Paul explains that you don't need to try to go to heaven to get righteousness, you don't need to go to the abode of the dead to get righteousness, where do you get righteousness from? How do we find salvation? Romans 10, verses 9 to 13. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, this is God's promise, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. They will not put God to the test and find him untrue. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. My friends and brothers and sisters, God has declared, he has stated that salvation comes by faith in Jesus Christ, by faith in what Jesus Christ has done, who he is and what he has done, by faith in the promise of forgiveness of sins in his blood for his name's sake. And that salvation is covenanted to the world. It is covenanted to you by God in the new covenant. God has promised Will you, O sons of Adam, return to him? Will you return to him? If your response is like Israel, how shall we return? The answer is by believing God's promises and as a result, obeying his commands. Believe the gospel and because your sins are forgiven in the gospel, obey God's commands. This is different from the old covenant. This is not offer up to me obedience and I will, give you, I will give you righteousness, it will be righteousness for you, and I will bless you in the land. This is, come as a sinner. Come as an unrighteous person, because my promise is to forgive your sins. That's why you're coming forward to this covenant. And there's no doubt, there's no question, there's no uncertainty. This is a faithful saying that Jesus Christ died for sinners. And as God was faithful to a faithless people in the old covenant, so he will be faithful to a forgiven people in the new covenant. Would you please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6? We're touring the Bible here. But I don't think you'll complain. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 17 to 20. Remember, we are unfaithful. God is faithful. And as Israel ought to have believed that and offered up obedience for blessing, so also we ought to believe God's promise and receive freely the forgiveness of sins. Why should we trust God's promise? Why should we trust him? Hebrews 6, verses 17 to 20. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath 
so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. There's a hymn that says, What more can be said than to you he has said? What what more could God say to us as his children to convince us of his faithfulness and the, the veracity, the trueness of his promise? He has given to us his unchanging character and his unchanging word. He, he made Jesus Christ a priest by an invincible oath. You are a priest forever. And that unchangeable oath, as well as the unchanging character of God behind that oath, guarantees the promise of Jesus' priesthood, which makes us completely trust in Jesus as he takes us into the inner, into the, the Holy of Holies in the heavenly temple. And so why should we trust in the one who offers himself up in heaven for our sake? Because his priesthood is established by the power of an indestructible life as well as an invincible oath as well as an immutable God. God has guaranteed eternal life based on the unchangeable character of his purpose. I, the Lord, change not. Therefore, you can trust in my promises, O sons of Adam. And if you flee for refuge to that promise, if you make Jesus the steadfast anchor of your soul, what more could you ask for to assure you of the eternal security of your salvation? It has been covenanted to you by an immutable and perfect God whose historical record of faithfulness is impeccable. You know, when you buy a used car... You want to know the history of the vehicle. You say, okay, what, what's happened to this vehicle in the past? It will help you to trust more in that car and have confidence in your purchase. Well, by way of a poor analogy, we can look at God's track record of faithfulness in covenant. Look at Malachi 3. At the, as close to the end of Israel's history as we have in the, in the canon, in the scriptures, we have God saying, from your fathers, you have been faithless, you have been unfaithful, you have been treacherous, you have been wicked, you have been unrighteous. But I, the Lord, change not. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, have not been consumed. So what do we do then as God's people who have trusted in that promise and run to Jesus and found refuge in him? Hebrews 10.23 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. He who promised is is faithful. And holding fast the confession of our hope is Jesus Christ is returning and will give us the resurrection. We don't see him, but he has gone before us and he will bring us to himself. That is our hope. It's not, well, I hope that happens, but it's an investment of confidence and assurance, an assured hope. It's not about me deciding how much I hope in something, but something that gives me hope, an objective hope. We hold fast the confession. We declare our hope. And you know how we do this? There's many ways, but above all, we partake of the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Supper, remembering his death until he comes. So when we come together, we say, this is God's promise to us. This is his visible promise to us that the basis of our salvation and the forgiveness of our sins, the covenantal promise God has given to us is visibly communicated to us in these elements. 
to say the basis of your salvation is the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. And you can enjoy that as the guarantee of your salvation until he comes. Because we hope every time we partake of the Lord's Supper that it's the last time. We hope that he comes and that this is the last time that I have to look at a token of his body and blood. But that I, I want to see the fullness. I want to see the reality of my risen and resurrected and ascended and glorified Lord. And this is a token until he comes. This is to keep us. This is, to, this is where we collectively hold fast the confession of our hope. Which is why the writer goes on to say, so don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together or you're forsaking the confession of our hope. You're saying, no, I'd rather not declare the forgiveness of our sins in the body and blood of Jesus Christ and the promise of the new covenant. I'd rather not be a participant in that. I'd rather stay home today and watch football or something like that. You say, that, has, that, has, that makes absolutely no sense. Why would you forsake the assembling of the brethren together who come together to hear the word of God declared and to participate in the word of God visibly represented to us in the sacraments and baptism and the Lord's Supper? If God is faithful to his promises, why would I not want to participate in that promise through this that he has given to me in order to participate in it? This helps me to persevere in thankful and grateful obedience to God's commands. We do this because we know we're not keeping the law in order to earn God's blessing or stay in the land. God doesn't say, I've freely given you salvation. Now, in order to stay in that salvation, you must continue to offer up to me righteousness or something like that. No. Jesus says that he will raise up on the last day all of his people. He will not lose them. So we do not keep the law to preserve our salvation. The new covenant is not like the old covenant that was broken, is it? It's entirely different. So we can say with the psalmist in Psalm 117, Praise the Lord, all nations, extol him, all peoples. Why? For great is his steadfast love toward us. And the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Israel could truly say that. His steadfast love endures forever. His faithfulness endures forever. They could say that truly because the Lord was truly faithful to them. We can say it on a higher level, on a heavenly level, not just an earthly level. The steadfast love of the Lord. His steadfast love is his... His love towards us in covenant, his, faithful towards, his faithfulness towards us in covenant, it endures forever. There's no end to it. It doesn't exhaust. It doesn't run out. We can say with Paul in Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Why can we say that? Because I, the Lord, change not. If that's ever untrue, all of the promises we've trusted in, there's no reason for us to trust in them. If God can be changed, if God does change in any sense at all, if there is any changeability in God, then we have no reason to trust his promises because he's not God. But because the Lord changes not, therefore we will surely inherit eternal life. And Jesus himself told this to us in John chapter 6. He said, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. That is the new covenant. Everyone who looks on the Son... Their sins will be forgiven. They will be declared righteous. 
In other words, they will have the right to eternal life because the ones who are perfectly righteous have a right to the glory of God. And I will raise him up on the last day. Are you an unbeliever? Do you disbelieve the promise of our unchangeable God? Do you call God unjust? Do you call God unfaithful? Do you call yourself righteous? Do you call yourself just? Do you say, how have I been faithless? How have I been wicked? Do you rest in your own obedience? Do you say, I am doing what the Lord commands. I do do what God says in his law. Do not disbelieve his promises. Do not disobey his commands. Return to him. Because you are unfaithful, but he is faithful. And he has covenantally promised, promised in covenant, the forgiveness of sins and eternal, eternal life for all who flee to Jesus, for all who trust in Jesus Christ. Do you believe that promise? Do you believe the promises of our unchangeable God? If you do, then serve the Lord, keep his commandments, walk in his ways with a heart of thanksgiving and joy and gratitude. John tells us in 1 John that the children of God keep the commandments of God because they've been delivered from the curse. They do the works of their father. Who's your father? John says, if your father's the devil, you do the works of the devil. If your father is God the Father, then you do the works of God the Father. In other words, the children of God obey the commandments of God. They walk in the ways of their father. And so as you have been called to trust in Jesus Christ, along with that comes the call not just to believe the gospel, but to obey the law because you have believed the gospel. And we do that rejoice and we do that with gratitude. We do that with joy in our hearts because we're so thankful. What have we contributed to this new covenant? What have we brought forward? Just our sinful selves. Just our own unworthiness. And so there's no claim of merit. There's no claim of earning anything in this covenant. It's simply receiving a free promise. It's an open hand saying, thank you for what you have promised. Rejoice in your salvation. Rejoice in the author of your salvation, God the Father. Rejoice in the accomplisher of your salvation, God the Son. Rejoice in the applier of your salvation, God the Holy Spirit. And rejoice in the immutability, the unchangeableness of your salvation because of the unchangeableness, the immutability of your triune God. I, the Lord, change not. Therefore you, O sons of Adam, are not consumed. Brothers and sisters, we can wake up every day and that will be true. We can put our heads on the pillow every day and that will have been true all the day and it will be true all the night. His mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. It's such a wonderfully comforting doctrine, isn't it? It's so... the, The nourishment that it gives the Christian is immeasurable. You can't quantify it. And again, it does not exhaust. It doesn't run out of gas. It doesn't run out of quantity. It's a promise that that sustains us for the rest of our lives. So brothers and sisters, I would urge you as you look at Malachi to see yourselves pictured by Israel, but to find joy and consolation in the fact that the covenant in which you are related to God, 
is not like the old covenant. It's the new covenant. And that God has promised you forgiveness of sins in that covenant. Eternal life in that covenant. Eternal resurrected glorified life in that covenant. And you can rejoice in that. And God, God is so kind even to Israel because the, the verses leading up to ours in Malachi 3 talk about the preparation for the Messiah and the arrival of the Messiah, the messenger of the covenant and the angel of the covenant. John the Baptist and Jesus himself are described so close to their coming. God is saying, I'm going to fulfill your pro- my promise to you. I'm going to bring to you the blessing of the nations. And we have the wonderful privilege of being the nations that are blessed in that offspring in Jesus Christ. And it is also our privilege to take that blessing to the world by preaching the gospel. And so, preach the gospel with the confidence of the unchangeable God who offers the promise of salvation. You can assure the people with whom you speak that because God does not change, therefore, he will punish the wicked. But God also has promised in an unchangeable way that he will save, that he will forgive and justify, he will forgive and declare righteous all those who go to Jesus Christ by faith. And we can back that promise up with the unchangeable God that we serve, our immutable God. So brothers and sisters, just remember, I the Lord change not. Therefore you, O sons of Adam, are not consumed. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are filled with joy and gratitude. Joy because our sins have been forgiven. Gratitude because our sins have been forgiven. And our Father in heaven, we thank you that, that you have accomplished this by sending your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for taking our flesh upon yourself, uniting it with your nature and living a life of obedience we could never live, dying a perfect, pure, sacrificial death that we could never die and giving us resurrected, eternal life as a result. Holy Spirit, how we thank you for sovereignly and powerfully applying that salvation to us in time and space. Thank you so much for bringing the power of the word to bear upon us. Thank you that faith comes by hearing and you caused us to hear the word and you begot within us. You caused to grow within us faith. You gave us faith to believe. Our Father in heaven, how we thank you and we praise you for our salvation. We thank you for its surety, its security. We thank you for its foundation, your immutability. We pray that you would cause us to walk in your ways and to obey your commandments with this joy and with this gratitude, that we might serve you with love, that we might serve you with reverence and awe and holy fear. Our Father in heaven, we we ask that as we see our creatureliness and we see the perfection of you, our creator, our God, that we might worship you and serve you, that we might love you with greater joy, with greater gratitude. And we ask all of this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.